This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In the summer of 2005, Connecticut teenager Nedra Nance was eagerly awaiting the arrival of her first child. Known as Nettie to her friends and family, the 17-year-old was making all the necessary preparations. Among the more routine tasks for many expectant mothers is finalizing health insurance ahead of their delivery. In order for Nettie to cross this off her to-do list, she had to obtain all the required documentation, including her birth certificate. All pretty straightforward. Nettie submitted the paperwork, but was soon contacted by the insurance company with some unsettling news. Her birth certificate was a forgery. Stunned, Nettie went to her mother for answers, but something about the situation wasn't a huge surprise. Since she was a kid, she had noticed that she didn't really look much like her mother at all. She also didn't know very much about her family history, and the man she knew as her father was mostly absent from her life. So it had always been just her and her mom. When Nettie confronted her mother over the fake birth certificate, the older woman broke down. She confessed that she wasn't the girl's biological parent and explained that Nettie's real mother was a drug addict who had abandoned her at birth. While the explanation seemed a bit convenient, it was enough to calm the teenager. Sure, it was unusual that she didn't have a legitimate birth certificate, but maybe the forgery was just a result of something arbitrary. Maybe her mother needed a copy of the document at some point, and forging one was less time-consuming than going through the long bureaucratic process. Satisfied, Nettie let it go. After all, with her baby almost due, she had bigger things to worry about. It would be another five years before the issue came up again but this time she was going to get to the bottom of her mother's unusual story. The truth, however, was going to change everything. Nettie went to work investigating every possibility, desperate to find out why her mother had obtained a fake birth certificate for her. One frightening prospect was that she'd actually been kidnapped. And while the thought had crossed her mind, it was almost too ridiculous to entertain. Also, stuff like that only happened in the movies. The now 23-year-old started scouring the internet. Nettie wasn't sure how her mother would react if she found out, but she knew she had to eliminate every possible scenario to find out who she was and where she came from. While searching the website for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, Nettie's heart skipped a beat. Staring back at her were photos that had an uncanny resemblance not only to her as a baby, but also of her own young daughter. The website had a composite showing what the child might look like as an adult. Nettie was staring at herself on the computer screen. Shocked and horrified, she picked up the phone and dialed the organization's hotline. Turned out, Nettie wasn't Nettie at all. The longest unsolved case of non-parental child kidnapping in the U.S. was about to come to a spectacular conclusion. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. True.
Following the call to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in December 2010, Nettie was put in touch with her birth family. They had never given up hope of finding her and were beyond happy at the prospect of being reunited. But first, officials had to confirm her real identity, so DNA samples were taken. Early the following year, the results came back. Nedra Nance was actually Carlina White. She was born in New York City on July 15, 1987, to Joy and Carl White. Just three weeks after Carlina was born, her parents became worried. Their newborn was running a fever of 104 degrees, so the couple rushed her to the hospital. The baby had an infection and was placed on an IV overnight. It was during a shift change in the early hours of the following day that Carlina went missing. She was just 19 days old. To make matters worse, the hospital's security cameras weren't working, so there was no video evidence showing anyone leaving the hospital with the infant. The best police could determine was that she had been abducted just after 3.30 a.m., around the time the IV was removed. Further inquiries revealed that when Carl and Joy White arrived at the hospital, they were tended to by a woman in uniform they assumed was a nurse. But when the couple gave police the woman's description, hospital staff came to a terrifying realization. The description sounded a lot like a woman who'd been hanging around the hospital in the weeks leading up to Carlina's abduction. A security guard who was on duty that night said he saw the woman exiting the hospital at around 3.30 a.m. However, from what he could see, she did not have a baby with her. With no further leads, the case went cold. Devastated, Joy and Carl White returned home without their child. A $10,000 reward was offered for Carlina's safe return, but no one ever came forward. Who was the woman that kidnapped Carlina 23 years earlier? Her name is Anageta Petway, or as she prefers, just Anne. On the evening of the kidnapping, Anne Petway caught a train from her home in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and headed into Manhattan. After taking the baby and walking out of the hospital unnoticed, the pair got on the return train back to Bridgeport. Anne renamed her Nedra and went on to raise the baby girl as her own. Over the years, Anne Petway had multiple run-ins with the law. There were convictions for drug possession, forgery, and larceny, and she was constantly placed on probation. Yet, as often as she went through the legal system, no one ever suspected that her daughter was actually her greatest victim. Following the DNA results in 2011 that confirmed Carlina's identity, the FBI went on the hunt for Ann Petway. Police say Petway went on the run last week after the kidnapping and reunion made national headlines. Friday, they issued a warrant for Petway's arrest. Saturday, she narrowly escaped being captured when a clerk at this pawn shop in Connecticut who had seen her on TV called the police. Today, she's facing federal kidnapping charges. Deciding that life on the run was not for her, Anne turned herself into the FBI not long after. Her sympathetic explanation for why she abducted Carlina fell on unsympathetic ears. According to her story, back in 1987, 
unsure if she'd ever be able to have a child after several miscarriages, and decided to simply take someone else's. What better place to find babies than at a hospital? All she needed was a fake uniform, and the rest, well, the rest was easy. The woman accused of kidnapping that baby girl from her hospital crib 23 years ago, she has confessed. Court documents show Ann Petway admitted yesterday to snatching Carlina White and raising the girl as her own. Her former legal issues combined did not come close to the consequences she was facing for stealing a child. If found guilty, Ann was looking at a sentence of 20 years to life in a federal prison. Wanting to avoid that kind of jail time, she pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 12 years behind bars. Anne Petway is due to be released in 2024. The case of Carlina Nettie White has the sad distinction of being the first known infant abduction from a hospital in New York. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. A year after the kidnapping case of Carlina White made headlines, it became the catalyst for a similar story. In 2011, 35-year-old Steve Carter decided he wanted to know more about his background. The software sales rep had grown up in New Jersey, but had since relocated to Philadelphia with his wife. From a young age, Steve knew he'd been adopted and that he was born in Hawaii, but that was about it. When he asked his adoptive parents for more information, they were always fuzzy on details, and generally unhelpful. So, Steve Carter hit the internet to see what he could find on his own. During his research, he came across Carlina's incredible story, which led him to a website featuring missing children. Steve didn't expect to find anything as he browsed the site, but when he found himself looking at his own photo, he was in disbelief. The picture was an artist's impression of what the missing baby would look like as a young man, and it was the spitting image of him. Steve, it turned out, wasn't Steve at all. His real name was Marks Moriarty Barnes, and for the last 34 years, his birth father had been looking for him. As the pieces were coming together, he realized that the search for his adoptive parents was going to be far from normal. Steve, or Marks, was born in early 1977 to parents Mark Barnes and Charlotte Moriarty. The couple had been together for about two years, and at the time, called the tropical paradise of Hawaii, home. On June 21st of that year, 31-year-old Charlotte told Mark she was just popping down to the local store. It was only a few blocks away, and she said she would take the baby with her for some fresh air. 
The minutes became hours, which stretched into days. But Mark wasn't too worried. Charlotte was known as a bit of a free spirit, and it wasn't unusual for her to go off-grid for a few days. Mark trusted that she would safely make her way home at some point, like on previous occasions. However, when a few days became a few weeks, Mark became concerned. He contacted authorities to report that his girlfriend and his son were missing. As law enforcement always says, the first 24 hours after someone goes missing are the most crucial. After that, the chances of being located alive decrease significantly. By the time police got involved almost a month later, it's safe to say that the trail was pretty cold. After eliminating Mark as a suspect, law enforcement had no other leads to follow. Mark Barnes's world had been turned completely upside down. For the next year and a half, he searched all over Hawaii, but there was no sign of Charlotte or their son Mark's. They had vanished. As Steve dug further into the details of his disappearance, he found that the day after he and his mother went missing, a local woman on the island called the police. Charlotte and the baby were at the woman's home, and she was concerned about Charlotte's agitated and erratic behavior. Apparently, she told the woman that her name was Jane, and her son's name was Tenzin. When authorities arrived, Charlotte's behavior was so unstable that she was admitted to a psychiatric hospital for treatment. With no further information on their identities, Marks was taken into state custody. Meanwhile, Charlotte remained in the hospital, but only for a few days until she was able to discharge herself. Instead of returning home, though, or taking steps to get Marks back from the state, she just left. Again. Because the pair had not yet been reported as missing, and as Charlotte gave authorities a false name and date of birth for her son, it would be decades before he was linked to a missing child case. Marks, or Tenzin, as he was now called, was placed in an orphanage until he was adopted in 1989. His new parents were Steve Carter Sr. and his wife Pat. They named him William Stephen Tenzin Carter. Unbeknownst to Steve, his birth mother Charlotte had a daughter from a previous marriage, named Jennifer. In 2001, Jennifer made a push to solve her brother's disappearance. She arranged for an artist to paint an age-progressed composite of what Steve might look like as an adult. The picture was then posted online, and was the same one he stumbled across. Steve immediately contacted the Honolulu Police Department. Eight months after his shocking online discovery, a DNA test confirmed that Steve was in fact Mark Barnes. He eventually made contact with his half-sister Jennifer, and then his biological father, Mark. It's a life-changing event, I'd say. Um, well, you know, we, we talked about me growing up, what I do now, what he did. Uh, it, was, it was very eye-opening. There was still the question about what happened to his mother, Charlotte. Unfortunately, that would remain unanswered. To this day, Charlotte remains missing, and while some believe she is still alive, the evidence is not encouraging. Since 1977, no one, including her daughter Jennifer, has seen or heard from her. Charlotte Moriarty, who also went by the name Jane Amia, would now be 76 years old. She's 5 feet 6 inches tall, 
weighed 130 to 140 pounds, and had brown hair and blue eyes. If you have any information as to her whereabouts, please contact the Honolulu Police Department. They would love to speak with her. For many high school graduates, the process of applying for college is a stressful but exciting rite of passage into adulthood. In 2015, one student in Ohio was making his way through the grueling application process when it took an unexpected turn. While tracking down some personal information for the application, the student made a discovery so shocking that it would throw him into the media spotlight. J.J. Mangina graduated from high school in Cleveland as a straight-A student. He loved sports, was well-liked by his peers, and maintained a close relationship with his father, Jonathan. His mother was not around, but that didn't stop J.J. from excelling at everything he put his mind to. Like so many of his friends, he too was looking forward to attending college in the coming fall. But during the application process, J.J. hit a roadblock when it came to providing the required identification. When his details were entered into the system, for some reason, his name and social security number came back as a mismatch. When J.J. enlisted the help of a school counselor to see what could be done, he learned that his information had been listed in the database of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. According to the database, his real name was Julian Hernandez, and he had been reported missing since 2002. Also, his dad's name wasn't Jonathan. It was Bobby. Authorities were alerted right away, and in October 2015, Bobby was taken into custody and held on a $250,000 bond. This is the house where young Julian Hernandez was living with his dad, a stepmom, and a little stepsister. He was an honor student, headed to college in the fall, and then his world came crashing down with the discovery that he was missing, and he didn't even know it. It didn't take long for details of the abduction to emerge. Thirteen years earlier, Julian had been living in Birmingham, Alabama, but his parents had broken up and were in the middle of a bitter custody battle. At the time, Julian was living with his mother because Bobby had reportedly made threats to take their son away from her. In late August 2002, he did just that. Bobby had been asked to babysit the five-year-old and used the occasion to take his son and run. When Julian's mother arrived home, the two were gone. She was certain Bobby had taken him because he left a note, but beyond that, the father and son were never seen again. Bobby and Julian eventually ended up in Cleveland, Ohio. As far as anyone they met was aware, their new names were Jonathan and J.J. Mangina. Bobby forged Julian's birth certificate and enrolled him in school. The five-year-old had no idea that anything had changed, as he and his dad began a whole new life. Julian's mother was crushed. The sudden loss of her son, and not knowing where he was or whether he was alive or dead, was overwhelming. Julian's picture and information were posted to a missing person's website called The Charlie Project, but for over a decade, there was nothing. It would be years later when his mother finally received the phone call that her son was found safe 
The dramatic story received so much media attention that it forced Julian to eventually issue a public statement requesting privacy. Meanwhile, 53-year-old Bobby Hernandez pleaded not guilty to 32 charges, including kidnapping, forgery, records tampering, and interference with custody. For every day that we were looking, that we were out there searching, that we didn't know if he was alive or dead, that we were in grief, that we were crying, sentence him at least to a term in prison as long as the 13 years that we suffered. His attorney told reporters that despite taking Julian all those years before, Bobby had in fact been a perfect father. He cited the close bond between father and son, and the fact that Julian was a well-rounded young man who was on his way to college. You know, he's been here 13 years, he's been a perfect father, and he's been everything a father could be. Uh, they've had, uh, they've seen each other and talked, and I think uh, his son was in Alabama over the weekend to visit with his mother, so... Uh, you know, things are going well from that standpoint. He's been very, very forthcoming and honest about the whole thing. Unfortunately for Bobby, he was also facing charges in Alabama, where the abduction occurred. Plans were being made for him to be extradited to the southern state following the completion of the Ohio trial. But Bobby eventually changed his mind, and in March 2016, pleaded guilty to two counts of kidnapping, two counts of interference with custody, and 10 counts of tampering with records. Since learning the truth, Julian has been able to move on with his father, saying, Even if other people can't, I forgive him for what he's done. I love him, and I want him to be part of my life. The time I've spent with him is the only time I've ever truly felt at home and at peace. A visibly remorseful Bobby told the court that he was sorry for taking Julian away from his mother. He explained that he abducted his son because Julian was the most important thing in his life, and the idea of being separated was too much to bear. Pleading with the court to spare his father from prison time, Julian did his best to get leniency, but the legal consequences were too serious to be ignored. I uh, don't know what else to say other than not to send my father to jail. I think that he's done a lot of good in our time here in Cleveland. And yes, growing up without my mother was painful at times, but taking him from me now was just doing the same thing all over again to me. In April 2016, Bobby was sentenced to four years in prison, which was to be followed by five years of supervised probation. The last anyone heard of Bobby Hernandez was when he applied for early release in January 2017. At the time, Alabama prosecutors were still considering whether to extradite him to face another possible sentence of up to 10 years. With close to half a million database entries for missing children in the United States alone, let's hope we hear more incredible stories of people who have been able to solve their own kidnapping.
Sleep won't come, and you've cried your some. Let it come to you. There's nothing you can do until I see you smile just below those eyes that tell me you're okay. It's written on your face. As you come to light, I come alive. Your silhouette in the summer sky. But this is only a matter You can only get better You can only get better And this is only a matter You can only get better You can only get better True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hope of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.